and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of James, pretty close to the back, right after the book of Hebrews. did finish the book of Romans last week, and we're embarking now on the book of James, and I'm excited about that. This is a great book. If you saw the Bible that I read on a pretty regular basis, you would see that the binding is broken at the book of James. And I have loved this book for a long time. I'm a practical guy. I like somebody saying, this is what you do. This is how you live. This is the, the, the way you model your life. And that's what the book of James is all about. James chapter 1, verse 1. You there? Hey, whoever's out in the lobby, will you turn the lights on, please? How we roll. <laughs> James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field will pass away, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, 
This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do, not, do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is a prophet, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what is a prophet? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as also the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. My brethren, do not let many of you become teachers, knowing that we receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, 
a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not, does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do none of that come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy who then are you to judge another? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up your treasure in the last days. 
Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of of sins. Amen. 13 minutes and 22 seconds. Surely all of us have 13 minutes and 22 seconds that we can spare every day to read the book of James. And that's my challenge to you. As we embark on studying the book of James over the course of this summer, it's going to take us about 16 weeks, I beg you to carve out 13 minutes and 22 seconds of every day to read this epistle. God will use it to change your heart like you never believed. This is a fantastic book and one that we need to be intimately familiar with. I know there's some here that have never even read the book of James, but I know there's some here who should have it more memorized than they do. So all of us, as we begin this study, let's take a step of faith and say, God, I want to show honor to you in this way. I know we are all busy. I was at the men's conference a couple weeks ago. Somebody said, you know what busy means? Break out the letters, B-U-S-Y, being under Satan's yoke. Busy. Are we too busy for his word? No, we're not. 15 minutes a day. 
It'll change your life. I guarantee it. I guarantee it will. So let's take that step of commitment. What if we were to read it every day for the next 16 weeks? What would we become as a people? What would we become as a church? The gates of hell, hell would not prevent, you know, prevail against us. Because this book is about what it is to live the Christian life. This is how we live this life. It's a great book. Practical. Helps us understand when we get up, when we go to work on Monday, when we're at the party on Friday, when we're you know, playing with our kids on the weekend. This is how we live. These are the things that we do to show that we are in the world, but not of the world. That's how the letter would have been read initially. It says in verse 1 that it's to the dispersion. It's to all the churches. James didn't necessarily write this to a particular person. It was meant to be shared among the various churches. And so they would spread the letter around and a church would gather. They gathered in people's homes. They didn't have buildings to meet in in those days. And so they would gather, they'd have a meal, they'd fellowship with one another, and then somebody would roll out the scroll. The pastor would roll out the scroll and just read the letter in the way that I did. And they'd let it soak in. They'd, let it, uh, they'd just sit there and listen to it. You know, I don't know if you guys have, if you got the smartphone um, thing going on, version is a great app for you to have. If you don't have it already, download the version app. It's a great thing because... Um, Hearing, uh, faith comes by hearing the word, right? And the, the version app will read it to you just the way that I just read it to you. You can sit there and, and listen to it you know, on your way to work every day. You got a 15-minute drive to work? Listen to James. Do it twice a day on the way to work and on the way home. It won't be a waste of time. And as we set up our study in James, what we're going to talk about today is critical in order for you and I to optimize what we're going to learn from James. What we're going to talk about today, it's, it's imperative that you're, I'm so glad you're here today, because it's going to set up everything that we're going to learn from here on out for the next 16 or so weeks. It's really imperative that you and I understand what we're going to talk about today. So let's go back to the beginning of the letter. James 1.1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. That's it? Yeah. That's it. And probably we'll only get about half of that today. James. Who wrote this book? Good, somebody didn't say Paul, thank you. <laughs> James, James wrote the book. Back in the day, that's how they signed the letters. They wrote it first, they didn't write it last. We write, you know, sincerely or with all my love or I hope I never see you again. Chris. They put it at the beginning of the book. But the question is, who is James? Who is this man? that wrote this fantastic epistle? Well, I think we get a clue from Mark chapter 6. We got a second flip over to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. We're just going to read the first three verses, but I want you to see it as well. Mark chapter 6. 
It's talking about Jesus' um, in the beginning of his ministry, his earthly ministry, somewhere around 30 A.D. And he's ministering to people, and he, he had come to his hometown, and he's trying to minister as, the, as well there. So the he that he speaks about in verse 1 is Jesus. Then he went out from there and came to his own country. So he goes to Galilee where his family is, and his disciples followed him. These are the 12 that he had selected back in chapter 3 of Mark. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter's son, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Judas, or Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. <laughs> Jesus goes and preaches a fantastic message. He's been doing mighty works, and many people are getting healed in that place. And then they're like, wait a second. What's going on here? We know this guy. We've, we've been around him his whole life. Isn't this the one that, that that's the carpenter's son? He, he builds tables for a living. Who is he? But here we get a clue also of who his family is. He is the carpenter's son. Joseph was a carpenter. And Joseph and Mary didn't just have Jesus and stop. They went on to have a big family. Jesus has four here listed half-brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and also some sisters, more than one. Because it says, it doesn't list their names, but it says, and his sisters are present with us. So Jesus is one of seven at least, if not more. And one of those, in fact, his closest brother is this man named James, who ends up later on, about 15 years later, writing this epistle to the church. James is the half-brother of Jesus, the younger half-brother. He's younger because Jesus was the firstborn. He's only a half-brother because they had the same mom, Mary, but they had different dads. Jesus given by the Holy Spirit. James, a product of Joseph and Mary. So half-brothers. Jesus began His public ministry about the age of 30. James, His brother, closest kin, pretty much lived with Him, well, He lived with Him His whole life and pretty much all of Jesus' life. They, they had... Gather, they had lived together for 30 plus years, 30, or, or 30 years or less, 30, 29. I'm not sure exactly how old James was. James was there when mom and dad had to turn the caravan around to go back to get Jesus. Remember the story? Jesus at 12 years old. They all traveled to Israel together. Jesus hangs out in the temple. His family leaves without him. Family's a big, you know, lots of kids do that every once in a while. 
I think Amy was left behind once. <laughs> We're like, Amy, you're still here. Your mom and dad, they left. <laughs> Sorry, Carly, not to embarrass you, that wasn't the point. <laughs> what? Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> To be fair, she had left first and thought Dave was going to bring her home, and I think Dave thought that Carla had taken Amy. <laughs> we've we've come well, uh, we've we've come close to it as well. I don't know that we've ever actually done it, but either way, it happens. Is my point? <laughs> it happened to Jesus. They're traveling home from being in the temple, they go three days. <laughs> Not 45 minutes, three days. Hey, Mary, has it, anybody seen G James? Have you seen Jesus? And James is like, I'm glad he's gone. <laughs> you know, sibling rivalry, you know. No, I haven't. So they turn the caravan around and head back and pick up Jesus. James was there for that. James and Jesus would have worked side by side in the, in the family industry. They were a carpenter family. And Joseph wouldn't have done all that work by himself as the young men grew to become men around the age of 12 and 13. He would have began to train them in the tools and, the, and in the proper woods to select. And, and he, James, and Jesus would have worked side by side all through their teenage years in the, in the family business. They, they would have sat together at almost every meal as they gave thanks to God and took in what God had provided for them Jesus and James sitting there close to one another. They would have traveled to Jerusalem to worship together. They would have played together as youngsters. We don't think about Jesus in those terms very often, do we? He came from a family. He and the boys would be out playing tag or football or, well, probably not football, but whatever. They shared memories with one another because they shared experiences with one another. So what I'm trying to say, and I think you kind of get it, James has an intimate knowledge of who Jesus is. He's lived his whole life with him. Most people, he has a greater knowledge of who Jesus is than most people because he spent his entire life with him. So now that Jesus has begun his public ministry, how does James feel about that? Well, it's interesting if you take a couple pages back to Mark chapter 3, in verse 21, it says this. This is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry as he is naming the 12 disciples. It says in verse 21 of Mark chapter 3, But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay a hold of him, for they said, He, Jesus, is out of his mind. His own people means his family. So Jesus begins his public ministry, begins to gain traction in the community, begins to do these miraculous things, and James is there to say, we need to go get him. I think he's crazy. And I don't think it was like a tongue-in-cheek, the boys lost it, you know. I think it was a genuine concern. We need to go get him, because this is getting out of hand. 
Think about what Jesus did in order to begin his public ministry. He left a prosperous business to become an itinerant preacher. Moms, how'd you feel about that? The guy's making 80K a year. Hey, I'm giving it all up and I'm going to just trust the Lord. I've got a can of beans and I'm heading out on the road. How would you feel about that, Mom? The religious and political leaders, they plotted to murder Jesus, and he didn't back down. That's verse 6 of Mark 3. His family was afraid for Jesus' sake. Huge crowds began to follow Jesus, and they knew fame and attention and celebrity, that can go to somebody's head. And they wanted to protect him from that. Jesus had shown some spiritual power that he had never really shown earlier in his life. We get that from verses 9 to 11 of Mark 3. And so they're questioning, hey, was something wrong? What's going on with our brother? And then he picks up this ragtag, unlikely group of disciples. That's your A-team, Jesus? That's the best you got? Peter and James and John and fishermen? You, you could have chosen from the best schools in all of Israel. And you pick fishermen? What's wrong with Jesus? So they said, he's out of his mind. So how does a man go from that boy's out of his mind to James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does a man with genuine concern for the mental health of his older brother go from that to writing, I'm a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? He doesn't say, Hey, I've been, I'm in ministry with my brother. He doesn't name drop here. Yeah, Jesus, oh, he's my, he's, he's my boy, you know? We, we roll together. We have our whole lives. He doesn't take that approach. In fact, he mentions no relation at all. We have to dig through the, the Gospels to figure out who it is. He doesn't call himself a brother. He calls himself a slave to his brother. You who have an older brother, are you willing to do that? It's not my brother Jesus, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Madonna got herself in hot water, imagine that. Madonna got herself in hot water a few years ago for wearing a t-shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Yet his brother calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. How did, how did he get from here to there? How did he go from calling his brother crazy to leading the church in Jerusalem? We see in the book of Acts, that's what, who James becomes. He is one of the primary pivotal leaders of the church in Jerusalem as it's going to the dispersion. How did he go from calling his brother crazy to dying a martyr's death on behalf of his brother? You know how James died? It's an interesting story. His, his name, his nickname was the Just. 
James was called the just because of his great righteousness. I get this from churchhistory.com or something like that. Rumor has it that he was a Nazarite from his mother's womb. He didn't drink any wine or liquor. He didn't eat any meat. He never cut his hair. He did not anoint himself with oil, and he did not bathe. Yeah. The person that wrote this says, I don't necessarily believe this rumor, um, and I would agree with that. I'm not sure that James was a Nazarite, but there is some tradition that would suggest so. James was the only one allowed to enter the temple alone. This is during his ministry. And he prayed and asked forgiveness for the Jews so much that his knees became hard like a camel's. As well as the just, he was also known as the bulwark of the people. James was so righteous, in fact, that he was respected by all seven sects of Judaism. They used to ask him his opinion of Jesus, to which he would reply that Jesus was the Savior. And since some of those sects didn't believe in the resurrection, a few among them believed in Jesus as their Savior. Those who did, however, became, believed because of James. After a while, James's influence became so strong that even some of the rulers believed, which horrified the scribes and the Pharisees. They became afraid that they became afraid that soon the people would be flocking to Jesus as the Christ. Somehow, perhaps because of his strict observance of the law, the Pharisees thought they could get James to discourage the people from believing. They asked him to stand at the pinnacle of the temple on Passover and speak. Apparently, James agreed. They brought him to the top of the temple, and they shouted to him from below, O oh, righteous one, in whom we are able to place great confidence, the people are led astray after Jesus, the crucified one. So declare to us, what is this way, Jesus? Obviously, that was not a very wise thing for them to do. James was ready to take full advantage of such a wonderful opportunity as this. His words are memorable. Why do you ask me about Jesus, the Son of Man? He sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power, and he will soon come on the clouds of heaven. The Pharisees were horrified, but the people were not. They began shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. The Pharisees, realizing the awful mistake they made, began crying out, Oh, oh, the righteous one is also in error. You can probably guess that at, this had little effect on the crowd. So the next obvious thing to do was to push him down from the temple, letting the people know exactly what happens to those who dare to believe in Jesus. They climbed the temple as the people shouted. They reached the top and they threw James from the pinnacle of the temple. It didn't kill him. He rose to his knees and began to pray for them. I beg of you, Lord God, our Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. This would not do. The Pharisees on the ground began to stone him as he prayed, while those from the roof rushed down to join the execution. One of the priests, however, a son of the Rechabites, shouted, Stop! What are you doing? The righteous one is praying for you. It was too late. A fuller, a launderer, took out one of the clubs that he used to beat clothes and smashed James on the head, killing him with one blow. How do you go from, my brother's crazy, we need to go get him out of there, 
to falling off the temple because you were pushed, getting up and praying until you get bashed in the head, willing to die for the name of Jesus. The resurrection. It's the resurrection. It's the gospel. That's how a life is so radically changed. We did a similar study when we began the book of Romans, and we said, talked about how Saul became Paul. It was because of that intimate meeting that Paul had on the road to Damascus. His life was so radically changed. It's because he had met with Jesus the Lord. And at some point, after Jesus had died, he appeared to his brother James. Think about that. Think about somebody that you've lost. Imagine coming that person after you've gone through the funeral, after you've laid them to rest in the ground, three days later shows up at your door. It changed me. I know that. Whatever they had to say, dude, you beat death. You beat that which nobody has ever beaten before. Whatever you got to say, I'm all ears. And what he had to say, what Jesus had to say was, I am the Lamb of God. I, I did come to take away the sin of the world. It was my Father's plan all the while that I would live to go to the cross on behalf of my brothers, my sisters, all those who would place their faith in me, not just this generation, but for all time, even 2,000 years later as you and I sit, we have an opportunity because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, because of the fact that He defeated sin and death, to come to Him, have forgiveness for our sin, and live out our lives in praise and adoration to His name. It's the Gospel. James's brother really was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. James becoming the man that he become, became, James writing this epistle, in my humble opinion, is one of the strongest proof texts that Jesus was who he said he was. If his brother changed his life in this radical way, then certainly there must be some truth to it. And I said at the beginning, it's imperative that you and I understand what I'm teaching today in order to optimize all that we're going to learn from the book of James. What, what's my main point today? It's that Jesus came and died for your sins. It's the good news. It's the gospel. It's that we don't work for our salvation. It's that Jesus died on our behalf. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. The way that we live this out, the way that we live out our, our faith is a response to who Jesus is and what He has done for us. This is not a book on how to become more holy. This is a book on how we worship Jesus with our whole lives. Welcome to the book of James.
I'll show you a picture that impacted me greatly. Can you hit that for me, Carla? Thank you. I went to a discipleship conference a couple weeks ago, and this is one of the tools that I gleaned from it. You can, it's kind of hard to read, but hopefully you can figure it out. Just a simple triangle at the top is the Father. Uh, to your right corner is identity. To your left corner is obedience. And it is absolutely pivotal that we understand the way to move around this triangle. You see, from the Father, through Jesus Christ, our son, His Son, we gain our identity. You and I become sons and daughter of the Most High God because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And from that identity, from who we become in Christ, you and I as sons and daughters pursuing Him, we move from our identity toward obedience. We live out who we are by what we do. And so it's imperative that we move around the triangle that way. Think about it if we were to try to go the other way. What if from the Father we strived in all that we are, we worked with everything that we had to be obedient to Him, but all we're going to find out is that we're going to fall short. We, we keep coming up short. We keep failing time and time and time again. And because of that, we never gain our, our identity. If we go around the triangle in the wrong way, all we're going to do is work ourselves to death and gain nothing. But if we move from the Father through Jesus the Son and we become, or we, we understand who we become, that we are the sons and daughters, that we have the heir, we are the heirs of the kingdom, that he has adopted us into his family. From that, then, we live out our lives in worship. It's so imperative that you understand this as we go through this epistle of James, because as we read and as we read, you're going to hear, I need to do this, I need to do that, I need to do this in order to be more holy, is what you're going to think. And that's not the case at all. You are as holy as you're going to get. You are as righteous as you're going to get because it's the righteousness of Christ that has been imparted to you. And His righteousness is perfection. So then, what we see is once we understand that, then our lives become a response to all that Christ has done for us on the cross. And we become obedient not to gain favor, but to say thank you. We, be, we, we become obedient as our form of worship. It's us not being conformed any longer to the pattern of this world by being transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's us offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. I will continue to remind us as we go through the next 16 weeks, hey, keep your heart, keep your mind on the cross and what Jesus has done, and all that we are learning is a response what he's done we're not trying to gain merit or favor with god it's important we're so important that you understand that that i don't want to go any farther today make sense everybody with me all right let's stand let's close in prayer thank you lord for your grace and your mercy thank you lord for your love for us thank you for redeeming us through the finished work of jesus christ on the cross that he overcame sin and death and resurrected to life, and through that we have life eternal. Through that we have adoption into your kingdom. We are king's kids, as it were. 
And I pray that we would live out our lives in praise and adoration to you. God, that we would strive to be obedient, that we would live out our faith in the way that James tells us to live it out. And I pray it would begin with all of us taking a big step today to commit to reading James every day until we're done studying it. 15 minutes, Lord. It's not much. We can find the time. Help us to remember to find the time. Help us to listen to it on the way to work or 15 minutes before we get out of bed, whatever it is, Lord. God, I just pray for those that are sick today. I pray, Father, that your mighty hand would be upon them. I pray, God, for all the moms in this place, and I am so grateful for all of them, Lord. I'm grateful for my mom who has done well to lead me in a godly life. And I'm so grateful, Lord, that you give us family. I ask a blessing over each and every mom, and I pray for the, the ladies in this house who have struggled with that, have not been able to, Lord, and this is a hard day for them. I pray that they would find peace in you. God, as we go from this place, I pray that we would be a peculiar people in this world, but not of it, and that our lives would be marked by the way that we love. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.